Uh, Just to get us started, let me invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes 12, and I'll read to you verses 9, 10, and 11. Of course, these words spoken about Solomon the preacher. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. Father, we are not in the position of this preacher seeking out words which we may write in the scriptures, but we are preachers with small p's seeking out words from the scriptures which we may preach, and as Solomon tried to do, do so correctly. So we pray that you will make us as men who are like well-driven nails, and that the churches will see us as given to them as gifts by our one shepherd. So speak to us, teach us, help us to think through this issue of preaching today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned to you uh, today, what I'd like to do is is for us to rethink expository. Um, I don't mean uh, that we need to rethink whether we should preach in an expository fashion, but to rethink the word expository itself and what it means for us to preach expositional sermons. Um, As we rethink the word expository, we may not rethink the the baseline definition that we would give if we were teaching a class in seminary. Probably all of us would say something like, I think it's Mark Dever who says that expository preaching is when the point of the sermon is the same as the point of the text. Uh, I think we would all agree with that. But in actual practice, at least in our culture, expository preaching means that Usually, plus, it refers to sort of a consecutive method of doing that. So beginning at the beginning of Ecclesiastes and working your way through all the way till the end of chapter 12, or more likely a book like Ephesians or Galatians or what have you. Um, And as you'll see today, I don't uh, intend to argue that there's anything wrong with us doing that sort of consecutive expository preaching. In fact, I'm going to argue that it's right and that we should do it. Um, But I also want to argue that it might not be the only method that we should intentionally employ and maybe not even the dominant method that we should intentionally employ. employ. Um, What I want to urge you, uh, actually, is to add to uh, your expository ministry not just consecutive preaching, but sometimes perhaps preaching on individual, sharp, pointed, clear texts, Sometimes a verse, sometimes a half of a verse, maybe sometimes two verses, and so on. I'll give you some examples. A sermon, perhaps, not on the entire narrative of Jesus' passion, but just on the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Or from Philemon, a less uh, well-known passage, Paul says of Onesimus, if he owes you anything or has wronged you in any way, charge that to my account. And you can see how we might take that passage, that, 
that text, put it in context with Paul and Philemon, and then show how Christ-like Paul is there and preach the gospel from Paul's example. <clears throat> if you're only always preaching consecutively, you may not have time to linger on texts like that. You may not have time to stop and consider all that it means that Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You may not have time, as Sinclair Ferguson puts it, to, to preach like your grandmother's peppermint that she kept in her mouth and sucked and sucked until all the juices uh, were used up and enjoyed. And so my experience has been recently that I found that some of my best sermons, some of the sermons that have helped people the most, some of the sermons where I felt like I was the clearest um, and where God gave me the most help and energy have been these kinds of sermons where I haven't been working consecutively through, but I've been peering very closely at an individual text. One example, uh, simply, you shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Thinking about Jesus as God, thinking about Jesus as God with us, his deity, his humanity, and then thinking about Jesus as God with us, all of us, like sheep have gone astray, and God is with us. Judges 8.4 is another example. It's at the end of the story of Gideon and his 300 men uh, defeating the army of the Midianites. You know that story well. And at the end of the story, we come to this phrase, Gideon and his 300 men crossed over the Jordan, weary yet pursuing. And so we looked at the entire chapter 6 through 8 and looked at the story and saw some lessons therein, but then really focused on those words at the end and why it is that they were weary and how it is that they kept pursuing. Just one other example from recent preaching, Psalm 109.4, where David is describing the, the attacks of his enemy, and then he says, but I am in prayer. And we just looked at that one little phrase from Psalm 109, verse 4, uh, noticing the word but, thinking about David being in prayer and so on. Um, and so I began to notice, wow, some of these some of these very brief texts have been the most memorable for the people in the congregation, the most helpful for some of them. And I wondered if it was an anomaly. Um, and then I began to hear other current preachers preach the same way. I listened to a fellow in Scotland preach on the text from Numbers ten twenty nine. Moses speaking to his father-in-law, Hobab, come with us and we will do you good. For the Lord has commanded blessing on Israel. And he put the text in context and talked about all the good that would come to Hobab if he went with Moses. Uh, and then he applied it to us. Shouldn't we be able to say this as a church, as individual Christians, to our neighbors? And he applied it evangelistically to people in the congregation that morning. Uh, another example, two sermons uh, by a fellow named Ian D. Campbell. I'm going to mention him a few times uh, that he preached at a conference, both of them with the same title, and their eyes were opened. One from Genesis 3 and the other from Luke 24. And you could see how that might be a powerful set of two sermons to see all that happened, all that it meant for their eyes to be opened because of sin, and then all that it meant for those men's eyes to be opened on the road that day because of the work of grace in their heart. These kinds of things have struck me as I've heard others preaching or read about their sermons. Um, another example I heard was Ecclesiastes 7-8, the end of a matter is better than its beginning, uh, which unfolded a whole sermon on how 
grace grows in the life of a believer. And of course, <clears throat> Spurgeon's the classic example of this, right? Taking an individual text, setting it in the context, although he's not always the best example of setting it in the context, but then preaching masterfully one text. And so as I looked at my own experience and these examples, I began to ask myself, why have I been so helped by these kinds of sermons? And can I employ this as a strategy? Some of these individual sermons that I've done have just been kind of I'm in between series. I don't know what to preach next. Ah, here's a verse that struck me this week. Let me preach this. But I begin to ask, should I perhaps employ this not only as a, as a stopgap, but as a strategy from time to time? And I've determined in recent weeks and months that I ought uh, to consider doing that, and I've begun to do that on some levels. And so I want to bring uh, what I'm learning for your consideration along these lines. Let me give you some clarifications about what I'm not saying, though, before I, before I give you the rest of what I want to say. First of all, I'm not urging this strategy in place of expository preaching. I'm urging this strategy of taking a text like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, as a form of expository preaching. Not pulling the text out of context, but looking at the text in context, perhaps spending some time at the beginning setting it in its context, and then zooming in close once the people see where we are in the scriptures. So I'm not urging that we, that we set aside an expository method. I'm saying that this is a form of it. And the same thing would be true if you were preaching that text in Philemon that I gave you, or Jeremiah 17.9, or Judges 8.4. You always want to put the text in context. I'm not arguing against that. I'm also not urging this strategy in place of consecutive preaching. I'm urging it alongside consecutive preaching. As I said, I think it's right that we preach through books, especially since people in our culture are so biblically illiterate. Even a lot of people in the pews, they don't know what's going on in the book of Judges or in the book of Ezra or in the book of Ephesians. And so it's good for us to go straight through books, and I'm not arguing against that. Um, for instance, right now, in this, on the Sunday mornings, I've been preaching a few of these individual-type sermons. I've just preached Second Samuel 14, 14, where the widow comes to David uh, when there's the difficulty with Absalom being banished, and she says to him, the Lord plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. And I preach that on Sunday morning, but on Wednesdays I'm going straight through the book of Revelation. A little bit crazy, but that's what I have going on. And so I'm just, I'm just urging you that, that both of these, I think, can be employed side by side. In fact, in olden times, particularly in Britain, this was the practice. One sermon would be what they called the sermon, and the other would be a lecture. They were both what we would call sermons, but one of them would be consecutive through a book or through maybe the catechism, and then the other would be these individual pointed texts. And Lloyd-Jones did this as well. We're familiar with his Romans and Ephesians. That's how we know him today. But most of his preaching was of the kind that I'm speaking about today, where he was taking individual texts and preaching them in context to his congregation. And so often he might have Ephesians going on Sunday mornings, and then he would have uh, these individual texts on Sunday nights. And their, their culture, you may know, was flip-flop. Sunday nights was when you would have the large crowds and the guests uh, and so on. So that's, that's a second sort of caution. I'm not urging that you throw out going through books of the Bible. Um, and then the third caution is just uh, that we know ourselves. As I work through what I'm going to present to you, um, you have to think 
to yourself, can I do this? Can my congregation do this? Uh, so don't just take my word for it. I'm just giving you, uh, I hope, some urging to consider these things. Now, I want to give you uh, um, three, three sort of um, big headings now. One, uh, I want to give you ten reasons why you should try this out. Ten reasons. Um, secondly, I'm going to give you some cautions, uh, some ways that you may fall foul if you preach this way and are not careful. And then thirdly, I want to give you what I'll call a way forward. If, if what I say today appeals to you or makes sense to you and you're thinking, how do, we, how do we put this into practice or at least try it out, I'll give you some ways that I think may be helpful to you. So t- first, ten reasons why I think this sort of preaching that I'm speaking about uh, ought to, uh, we ought to at least consider it. First is simply historical precedent. I mentioned to you already, Spurgeon always only ever preached this way. Not the greatest example, as as I said, always of of doing his exegesis well. And yet, all of us, I think, have benefited from Spurgeon. Uh, I mentioned Lloyd-Jones as well. Most of his preaching was done in this fashion. Men like Robert Murray McShane, uh, Kenneth McRae, some of you have heard of, Ian Murray's edited his uh, diaries, and so on. And, of course, we can bring in Calvin on the other side of the argument, right, or, or John MacArthur on the other side of the argument. And, and so, again, what I'm arguing is not that Calvin and MacArthur are wrong or that Calvin and MacArthur should only be followed or these other guys are wrong or should only be followed. I'm just saying uh, if we have Spurgeon and Calvin, if we have Lloyd-Jones and MacArthur, maybe we can learn from both kinds of preaching and even practice both kinds of preaching. That's one reason. A second reason why I think this can be helpful to us is variety. Some of us, frankly, may not realize that we're boring our people by, by beginning each sermon by saying, now, picking up where we left off last week, um, we like this, the story of Calvin doing that when he came back from Geneva, but we're not Calvin. Um, and so, Uh, Let me give you just a couple quotes in this regard. First of all, the fellow E.N.D. Campbell that I mentioned um, says this, As evangelical heralds of God's trumpet, we believe in giving no uncertain sound. But maybe sometimes the trumpet could be more effective if the tune was more varied. Might there be some added benefit for our congregations if they came to church next Sunday wondering in which part of the fields of their Redeemer they might be gleaning? And I think that's true. I think there's some benefit to people saying, oh, we're gleaning in the fields of Ruth and Boaz today, or oh, we're gleaning in the fields of the book of Luke today. Spurgeon speaks along the same, same lines in his book, Lectures to My Students. Uh, let me read to you what he says. I'm obliged to owe a great deal of my strength to variety rather than profundity. It is questionable whether the great majority of list preachers, consecutive preachers, in other words, had not far better burn their programs if they would succeed. I have a very lively, or rather a very deadly, recollection of a certain series of discourses on the Hebrews which made a deep impression on my mind of the most undesirable kind. I wished frequently that the Hebrews had kept the epistle to themselves, for it sadly bored one poor Gentile lad. By the time the seventh or eighth discourse had been delivered, only the very good people could stand it. These, of course, declared that they never heard more valuable expositions, but to those of a more carnal judgment, it appeared that each sermon increased in dullness. Paul, in that epistle, exhorts us to suffer the word of exhortation, and we did so. Are all courses of sermons like this? 
Perhaps not, and yet I fear the exceptions are few, for it is even said of that wonderful expositor Joseph Carroll that he commenced his famous lectures upon Job with 800 hearers and closed the book with only eight. A prophetic preacher enlarged so much upon the little horn of Daniel that one Sabbath morning he had but seven hearers remaining. They doubtless thought it strange that a harp of a thousand strings should play one tune so long. Spurgeon probably overstates it there a little bit, but I think you get his drift. Variety can be helpful to our people. Thirdly, simplicity. Simplicity. Sometimes in consecutive preaching, I find this to be true of myself. You, you can judge your own preaching. But sometimes when we're doing consecutive preaching, we find ourselves obliged to bite off more than we can chew. We don't want to linger in the book of Ezra for 30 weeks And so we move quickly, which is helpful. But we also feel in consecutive preaching duty-bound to make sure that we hit everything important that's there. And sometimes that can leave us giving people way too much food. Um, Or even if they're able to handle it all in that moment, they're not perhaps able to take it all home because there's so much that's there on the table. Uh, and, and yet, as I say, we don't want to slow down and preach in the book of Job for two years, as perhaps this Mr. Carroll did. So I'm suggesting to you that sometimes if we uh, vary our method a little bit and preach some individual sermons, that we may actually be more simple, easy for our people to follow. Fourthly, um, I think this kind of preaching can allow us, it's not the only method of allowing us, but it can allow us perhaps to be led by the Spirit more than we may be prone to do. We're planners, that's our culture. But again, let me read to you from Spurgeon. Again, Spurgeon overstates things, I'll tell you that up front, but I think what he says here is helpful. I dare not announce what I shall preach from tomorrow, much less what I shall preach from in six weeks or six months' time. Very much of the preacher's power will lie in his whole soul being in accord with the subject, and I should be afraid to appoint a subject for a certain date, lest when, I, when the time come, I should not be in key for it. Besides, it is not easy to see how a man can exhibit dependence upon the guidance of the Spirit of God when he has already prescribed his own route. Perhaps you will say, that is a singular objection, for why not rely upon him for 20 weeks as well as for one? True, but we never have had a promise to warrant such faith. God promises to give us grace according to our days, but says nothing of endowing us with a reserve fund for the future. Day by day, the manna fell, oh, to learn this lesson well. Even so, will our sermons come to us fresh from heaven when required. Again, an overstatement. You may have a plan for preaching, and God may intervene and change it. And if you're willing uh, for that, then I think that's right and biblical. But again, you get the point. Sometimes allowing God to burden you on the week of the preaching can be very powerful because the message is preached into your own heart. Don't be afraid then to allow the Spirit to interrupt your series. Don't be afraid sometimes, I think, to plan to just wait and see what the Spirit will give you that week. That's how Spurgeon did it. More gifted than us, and yet that's how he did it. He waited for the Spirit to give him the word that he should bring to his people. A fifth reason why I'd encourage this sort of preaching on you Um, is because you can take a text like the peppermint that I spoke of and and get all the juices out of it, or a a lot of them anyway. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples. 
I preached, I told you this past weekend, from 2 Samuel 14, 14. God plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. And it's a great gospel text, but if I had just been preaching consecutively through 2 Samuel and needing to hurry on to the next portions or cover the previous portions at length, I would never have been able to linger there. And my people may have missed a great blessing from that. Another example in the negative sense, I heard a, a young fellow at a, at a, um, in a sermon class give a brief sermon on 2 Corinthians 5, um, that whole passage about reconciliation, and then Paul saying, we are, we are in the ministry of reconciliation, and then, of course, it closes with that great text that God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And the fellow was so eager to make sure that he covered everything in the context of reconciliation and that he kept everything uh, sort of in place and gave proper balance to every portion of the passage that he gave very short shrift to that key verse of the scriptures, one of the best verses in the Bible, and didn't really preach the gospel at all from it. He, he presented that verse simply as a part of the overall context and sort of Paul giving an example of reconciliation, which is true. But man... What an opportunity missed because I think he felt duty-bound to, to cover everything with equal, um, equal weight. And we can avoid that if we sometimes, not always, but sometimes um, preach just 2 Corinthians 5.21. Spend five minutes explaining the chapter and the context, but then say, Now, Paul gives this great example of reconciliation. Let's look at it. And so I, I think the young man could have done both. He could have... He could have preached a sermon where he went through the whole context as the, as the outline of the sermon, but then really zoomed in on that text and gave it a little extra time. Or he could have given a brief context and then given the whole sermon, by and large, to that text. I'm simply arguing, generally, we do the first. I don't think most of us would miss that verse in, in preaching, but generally we do the first. So we might spend 40 minutes on 2 Corinthians 5 and 4 minutes on that, that great verse, verse 21, but I'm advocating that sometimes we spend four minutes on 2 Corinthians 5 and 36 minutes on the verse itself, especially with these great gospel texts like that one or the one I mentioned to you in 2 Samuel 14. A sixth reason, um, which is similar to the fifth, there's a difference between preaching the text, preaching the text itself, and preaching a summary of the text. And again, we need both. But there's a difference between, between taking a whole chapter and sort of me summarizing in my words what is there and me actually hammering home what God says, thus saith the Lord. So this past Sunday, I probably quoted 2 Samuel 14, 14, 20 or 30 times over, just trying to hammer that home, explain it, hammer it home, apply it hammer at home and quoting it again and again and again and sometimes that's much better it seems to me than simply sort of me giving my overall thoughts about God bringing prodigals home as that I really preach the text itself another example the text it is finished from the cross there's a, a way that you can preach that where you, you that's sort of a point or sub point within the sermon but you can also take a sermon and, and look at that phrase and then delineate for people all that is finished. What is finished? Because Jesus 
breathed his last. And you can work your way through and explain to them what's finished and then say, it is finished, and just drill that text in their minds. And again, I'll give you an example from Spurgeon. You know the text under which he was converted. Look unto me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved from God, and there is no other. And you remember the story. Spurgeon sort of pokes fun at the lay preacher for being so stupid that all he could do was say that text over and over again. Look unto me, you in the balcony, look unto me, you old people, look unto me. But you know what? Spurgeon was converted by that text, wasn't he? And Spurgeon never forgot the text by which he was converted. Some people say, boy, I remember I was converted that night when so-and-so was preaching. I don't even really remember what the sermon about was about, but God saved me. And that's wonderful. Nothing wrong with that. But it isn't it amazing that this man who... All he knew was to just keep saying what the Bible said, and God used it powerfully. And also along these lines, isn't it true, brothers, that when we, when we visit people in the hospital, when we, when we find ourselves by the graveside, when we find people in times of difficulty, isn't it often that there's an individual text that they're clinging to that's so helpful to them? It's usually that they're clinging to, let's say, Romans 8.32, Not that they're clinging to Paul's whole argument between chapter 6 and 8 of Romans, right? They need to do both, but there's something about these powerful texts that people instinctively for generations have clung to, and I'm saying I think it's helpful if we preach them to them often. Seventh, I think this kind of preaching, this one you you may have questions about later, but I think this kind of preaching... um, varied from different places of the scripture, these sharp pointed texts, can actually help us alongside our consecutive preaching to preach the whole counsel of God. This is an argument that's sometimes used against this method of preaching. If you just preach here and there and everywhere, how are you going to preach the whole counsel of God? And it's true that if you, you, you pull various texts, you can get on soapboxes, uh, you can stay on the same topics all the time, and I'll mention these kinds of things when we come to the cautions. But I want to suggest to you that if you only ever preach the other way, if you only ever preach consecutively, there's lots of stuff you'll never get to either. You will never preach... Jeremiah 17.9, most of you, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked, if you're only preaching consecutively, unless you're going to preach the whole book of Jeremiah, right? I haven't gotten there yet. Isaiah 55.1, ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and so on. Are you going to preach through Isaiah consecutively, or are you going to sometimes go, boy, that's a great text, I'll give you another one, a little less known. Um, You probably will recognize it, but um, let me turn back to the book of Job. You can turn there if you want or just listen. Uh, Job 34, 14 and 15, these are the words of Elihu, the young man who came at the end of the book. If he should determine to do so, If he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Isn't that a great summary of the upholding providence of God? But we'll never preach that text if we're only preaching consecutively unless we're going very slowly through the book of Job. Another example, Lamentations 3, Great is thy faithfulness, that famous passage that we sing more than we read. Most of us aren't in occasions where we're going to preach through Lamentations consecutively. We may be uh, in our churches, 
Um, but all sorts of examples where actually we may get people into portions of Scripture that they would never sit down in by doing this kind of preaching. Eighthly, this kind of preaching, I think, strikes and sticks. That's the phrase of William Jay. Some of you may have heard of William Jay, uh, 1700s preacher in Britain. He said he wanted his sermons always to strike and stick, and I think preaching these pointed texts does that. That phrase, but I am in prayer, struck people when I preached it, or weary yet pursuing. People can immediately say, that's exactly how I feel. And then you go back into the text and explain to them why Gideon felt that way, and then they probably identify with it even more, but the, the text struck. Or that text from Philemon, again, when I, just zeroing in on that, if he owes you anything or has wronged you in any way, charge that to my account, and you point out to people that that's what the gospel says about Jesus, then that strikes people. They remember that. And not only do these kinds of texts strike, but they stick. I can promise you... Uh, that I preached that Judges 8-4, weary yet pursuing, I think, three Sundays ago. I can promise you that most of the people don't remember uh, much of what I said, but they remember that verse, really that phrase, and therefore they remember the story of Gideon, and they remember how it was that they perhaps felt weary and how God encouraged them to keep pursuing, and that's what I want them to take from the sermon. I want them to take from the sermon what it is that God was speaking to them and encouraging them and helping them that day. Uh, and so striking and sticking, I think when there's an individual text, people can remember the sermon better than when there's a whole chapter. They're not going to remember my three points that I made about the book of Revelation chapter 4. It's okay. Uh, I still need to work through those three points in that case, but they will remember uh, an individual text that I preach often. The Word of God is much more powerful than my Word. Ninthly, just two more reasons to attempt this. I think this kind of preaching encourages us to preach with passion. With passion. Um, because you can hover over a text and not feel like you have to hurry on. And that's when, when passion comes out, isn't it? If you feel like you have to hurry to the third point, you, you cannot sometimes allow the Spirit to get hold of you so that you begin really to rise to the occasion. But if you give yourself 40 minutes to treat 2 Corinthians 5.21, then you give room for the Spirit to really carry you away, as it were. I don't mean that in any sort of odd way. I just mean the Spirit really coming and giving you unction because you're not in a hurry to get to the next thing. And I think this kind of unction, this sort of passion is essential to real preaching, not just teaching. And that brings me to the tenth point, which is really kind of a subset of this ninth one. This kind of preaching, the Spurgeon kind of preaching, preaching from these sharp pointed texts, I think highlights some of the differences between preaching and teaching. We can debate this when I finish, I suppose. But I believe that there's a real difference between preaching and teaching. Teaching, I think, primarily instructs the mind and gives you content, which the Spirit will later use, of course, to preach to you in your own individual context. But preaching strikes the conscience right now. Preaching is designed to move the will. Preaching is designed to move the affections. And Christians need both. They need both, and all good teaching ought to have some element of preaching into it, in it, right? Our Sunday school teachers ought to be urging people 
to believe or urging them to repent or whatever it may be. And all good preaching has a lot of teaching in it, right? If we're just standing up and, and excited, but we're not giving people the content of the Bible, it's not preaching. It's not expository preaching. It's not really preaching at all. It's just us ranting. So they overlap, but they're not quite the same, I don't believe. And one of my fears for many men is that when we only always go consecutively through books of the Bible, we run the risk of turning preaching into simply a running commentary on the text. And helpful as that may be, and though that may need to happen in context within the congregation, it's not the same as preaching. It's not what Spurgeon did. It's not what Lloyd-Jones did. For instance, with Lloyd-Jones, I heard a story of a, a young couple that went to hear him preach um, on the, the destruction of Dagon, when Dagon fell down before the Ark of God. And this story was told by Sinclair Ferguson, and he asked his friends, what was it like to hear Lloyd-Jones preaching? And the girl said, I thought that the building was going to collapse on our heads while he was preaching on that passage. And that's an amazing thing, that something was happening, that the fear of God was striking this girl in the moment. And so there's a way that you can talk about Dagon so that people understand and that the Spirit may use that later in their lives, but there's also a way that you can preach under the anointing of the Holy Spirit that people feel like the building is going to collapse because there's so much in the presence of God and of this particular truth about Him. And so let's beware, brothers, however we preach, even if we continue always only going through books, let's beware of just giving running commentary. That leads to Christians who are very solid here in their heads, but may not always be struck in their hearts the way we ought to be. Aim at the conscience and at the will. And I'm arguing that this sort of sharp, pointed text kind of preaching, interspersed with other kinds of preaching, will, will do that, will help you do that anyway. Now let me give you some cautions, just four of them. Um, of course, I gave you more pros than cons, but... Um, let me give you four cautions. This kind of preaching, and I'm not, I'm not quoting um, other people's cautions. I'm saying these are my cautions from you. This kind of preaching from text to text can lead to the mishandling of the text very easily. You can proof text very easily if you preach this way. You can engage in eisegesis very easily if you preach this way. So we must be careful to preach the text within the context and not simply to pull out a verse and make it say what we want it to say or, or just give, wind to, give to the wind the context. But I also say to you that we need not fear doing this if we're careful to give people the context and to preach within it. There's no reason why we have to preach a sing, single text irresponsibly. In fact, I would argue that those of us who've cut our teeth on consecutive expository preaching are probably not prone to taking things out of context. We're probably prone, some of us, to giving too much attention to the context where we can't really get to the point of the sermon. And if I were giving this lecture to a group of men who never preached consecutively, I would be saying all the opposite things of what I'm saying to you. I would be telling them, listen, you've got to get into the context. You probably should preach through books so that you won't fail to get into the context, but to a group like this... I'm saying to you, you're strong in the context, probably, um, and so you're not going to fall into the error that many might fall into. But that is one caution. A second caution is that this kind of preaching 
can, contrary to what I said earlier, it can lead to an imbalanced diet. It can lead to you not preaching the whole counsel of God. If you always go to texts that are hobby horses, if you always go to texts in the same genre, uh, that can happen to you. Also, if you only preach this way and don't also go through books alongside, you will, as Mark Dever points out, I think in his Nine Marks book, you'll never preach difficult texts, right? No one is going to say, boy, I really feel led this week to preach on now baptism saves you, right? You're going to come across that text and deal with it because you're preaching through Peter or the text that Justin mentioned uh, earlier from 1 Timothy, this difficult text about the will of God and the salvation of men. You may not just pull that text out and preach it when you realize all the difficulties that are there, but if you're preaching through 1 Timothy as Justin is, you'll get there. So, again, I'm arguing, don't take what I'm saying and do it wholesale. I'm, I'm arguing for a mixture. A third caution, preaching in the way that I'm suggesting, preaching in the way that Spurgeon did, does not teach people to read their Bibles for themselves nearly so well as consecutive preaching does. I think we would all agree with this. If you're preaching through 1 Peter and you're working through consecutively, people are going to learn how the message of 1 Peter flows, and they're also going to learn how to read the epistles. And that won't happen quite the same as if you just preach uh, earnestly desire the pure milk of the word of God. Um, and so, again, you need both. And, and you do need both because our culture is so biblically illiterate. Spurgeon sometimes gives a context of the verse that he's preaching, perhaps, and he doesn't need to go into the detail that you and I need to go into because even in the, uh, the downgrading days that he lived in, people knew the stories of the Bible uh, that they don't know now. And so you need balance between both types of preaching. But let me also say, alongside this caution, that this kind of preaching won't teach people to read their Bibles like consecutive preaching will, but that's not the primary function of your preaching. It's not the primary function of your pulpit ministry is teaching people how to read the Bible. The primary function of your pulpit ministry is to strike their conscience and their will and their affections with the truth. And there are other ways coming alongside your preaching that you should be teaching people how to read the Bible, not just from the pulpit, but in many other ways. That's why we're called as pastors, not just as preachers. And so don't allow this one deficiency of this kind of preaching to, to make you think that it's bunk. There are other ways that we must be teaching people to read the scriptures. A final caution, and then later you can add many more, I'm sure. Um, but this kind of preaching can lead the pastor searching for a text. 10 o'clock on Saturday night, right? And I'll give you some remedies to that in the next section. Finally, let me give you a way forward, just quickly. Suppose you're convinced, or at least curious, saying, hmm, Spurgeon, Lloyd-Jones, McShane, and so on, maybe I want to try this out, or maybe I at least want to probe a little bit further. What should I do? Well, the first thing I would urge is that you listen to others who do it well. Either listen to them by reading them or listen to them by listening on the internet. Spurgeon's a great place to start, um, I think, just seeing how he handled texts and how he got to the gospel. Lloyd-Jones, um, you can look at his Romans and Ephesians, but then you can look at Old Testament evangelistic sermons, which I have here, which are just select texts that he preached on Sunday nights in his congregation evangelistically. And there's some great uh, examples in here. 
Uh, he's got one on Naaman, the leper, and the parallels between Naaman and the gospel and so on. Um, a couple of contemporary guys, um, I mentioned one already, Ian D. Campbell. You can find him on sermonaudio.net, and I can give you his name again later. But just excellent at this kind of preaching. He doesn't only do this kind of preaching, but excellent at it. Um, and another fellow, Callum Ian McLeod, the fellow that I mentioned preached on Hobab and Moses, come with us and we will do you good. He is excellent at this kind of preaching. Also, uh, you listen to those who do it well, but also listen to those who are, are learning how to do it, which is what I'm trying to do. So if you want to go online at our website and listen to some of the sermons that I've told you I've tried to preach recently, you may listen and go, well, I'm not ever going to try what he's trying to do um, because it's a complete failure even after all that he said but you may listen and go okay I, I see what he's trying to do I see how it connects with what he said and maybe it helps you uh, to think through those things um, also just along similar lines read Spurgeon's lectures to my students and particularly the lecture on the choice of a text probably you men have read this lecture before but it's an excellent lecture on why he preached the way that he preached. That's one thing. Listen to others who do it well, and even others who are trying to learn how to do it, perhaps. Secondly, try it out yourself. I'm not saying wholesale commit to this today, beginning this weekend, but, but maybe go a few weeks, two or three weeks, and just see what the Lord will give you in your own personal reading that will strike you that you can prepare for your congregation and see how they respond and see if your gifts fit with what I'm describing. You may find that you're just not able to do it, that it gets you all in fits. But just just try it out, I would say. And let's say you try it out and it works. Wow, God helped me. This was so clear. I, 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 I feel like there was power. I feel like people responded well to this. How do you incorporate this into a method that you employ on a regular basis? Um, well, as I said, the third sort of way forward is don't give up on consecutive preaching. Mix, mix this in. Um, but then fourthly, uh, what I'd encourage you to do is, as you look for individual texts, look for what field that you're going to reap from. You can use individual texts, as I said, or you could possibly also do series of texts like the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross or like the I am sayings in the book of John or I just did a series on some of God's self-descriptions in the book of Isaiah. So um, you could do something like that as well where you take these key texts and you work your way through context but the force of the sermon is on the sharp pointed text itself. And that's an advantage, actually, um, if you're worried that you'll be scrambling on Saturday night. But if you're not doing a series, let me give you a fifth way forward, uh, a way to find these texts. Just read the Bible. I know that sounds oversimple, but read the Bible and then do this. Be willing, sometimes as you're in your own private reading, to let the Lord change your sermon for this Sunday. Say your next text uh, for me, it's Revelation 5 tomorrow night here in our congregation. But say that I'm reading tomorrow morning and there's a text that just nails me. And I say, the Lord has given me the burden of the Lord. Be willing 
to stop what you're doing or postpone what you're doing and zero in on this text. This happened to me a few years ago. I had prepared my sermon. It was Saturday afternoon at 4 or 5 o'clock. I was just finishing up, and I don't even remember how it happened, but that, that passage from Jude came upon my mind, um, keep yourselves in the love of God. And it burdened me so much that I thought, i gotta, I got to preach this tomorrow morning. And so I sat down, and it was a quickly prepared sermon, but God gave it to me. So don't be afraid for God to change your plans. Um, But then even as you commit, maybe I'm going to do this for several weeks. I'm just going to give some weeks and let the Lord um, give me manna day by day, week by week. One thing I'd encourage you to do is as you read your Bible, um, just always have a little notebook or little sheets of paper where you write down these texts as they come to you. Because you may say, I'm not going to preach that this week. But let me write this down because this is powerful and I want to come back to this. And maybe on one of those weeks where I'm waiting for the Lord to, to show me, I can come back to this and, and that burden will hit me again. I'll, I'll show you how I do it. I just have little sheets of paper where I write down the text. Um, sometimes I have an outline that sort of uh, suggests itself to me. But here's one, uh, Ezra 7.10, where it says Ezra set his heart to... Uh, study the law of God and to practice it and to teach his ordinances in Israel. Uh, And there's a a text that struck me in three points. He set his heart to study, to practice, and to teach. And so someday, Lord willing, I'll pull that out and use it. And so I just keep these little sheets of paper, and you could do the same. And so if I find myself one week not knowing what is next, I have five or six passages that the Lord has already burdened me with. Uh, that I can pull out and use. Finally, uh, one other thing to say practically, if you're not convinced that you can do this, but you're intrigued, uh, but you're saying, I don't know if I can spin out a whole sermon on my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, um, or on some single text, then start by doing it with an individual sermon point. Maybe you preach through 2 Corinthians 5 or those latter verses, 12 and following or whatever it may be. But you say, I'm going to take verse 21 and I'm going to give a whole point to this one verse. And I'm going to really try to nail this verse in place for people. Or maybe, um, as I did recently, I preached 1 Samuel 25, Nabal and Abigail and David. And then I got to that point where, where Abigail falls at David's feet and she says, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And we looked at her being willing to take her husband's blame upon herself. And then we looked at how that reflects Christ and gave a significant portion of the sermon to that text. I didn't preach the whole sermon on that text, but I gave a significant portion of the sermon on that text. And you may do that within a sermon and just see that the power of God through these powerful verses uh, really is helpful to people. And I would encourage you particularly to do that with texts uh, that proclaim the gospel. So then, uh, let me conclude by just pointing you back one more time to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12. I have droned on long enough and probably made you feel like Spurgeon listening as a boy to the series on Hebrews. But let me say again, Ecclesiastes 12.10, The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. He sought, of course, to find delightful words that he would write that became our Proverbs and so on. 
but we are doing the same thing as we preach week to week. We are seeking to find what God would have for his people from the words, the delightful words that are already written, and then to do it correctly.